0: it's time for class
1: civics just doesn't begin and end on election day this is sunday civics
0: the home for the civically engaged with political strategist l joy williams a serious xm's urban view
1: good morning good morning hello everybody happy sunday This is Joy Williams, your civics teacher and your neighborhood political strategist, here for another conversation here on Sunday Civics, another opportunity to provide context and education and history on civic participation from a Black perspective. And I am so grateful to everyone for tuning in every Sunday. I can't believe how long this conversation has continued with us here in this space every Sunday morning I'm so thankful to the Urban View family to all of you that continue to point back I hear you Clay I hear you Recy, I hear you Karen everybody always pointed it back to like maybe you should listen to Sunday Civics on Sunday mornings to kind of get the you know the civics lesson you need to be active and engaged in the space that we are in in this country at the current time. And I'm so thankful for all of that callback. And I love my folks in the Urban View family. Thank you. So today we're going to have two conversations about education and about the economy. I think it's always important to go back and to recenter ourselves on what the history and the context is of the battles that we are fighting in. It's always important to sort of go back, recenter yourself and make sure that you're just not running around in circles, that you have a clear indication of the fight you are fighting. And for me, I had to do that personally as the conversation of what is happening in Florida and in a number of cities and states across the country, where there is this pullback of teaching American history and teaching different aspects of American history. And not only that, you know, I'm also in a space like in New York City where I'm seeing, and for those of you who follow me on social media, you may have seen, I tweeted out these slides that were showing the reading and math scores of children in large cities like New York City where it is it is just poor it is just bad and folks can't read they can't do math and that is apparent (laughs) as we are engaging with people on social media but it it wasn't always like this particularly for communities of color and particularly uh, African-American communities black communities in general so I wanted to go back I wanted to go back early on to the beginning of the show where I actually began the conversations of Sunday Civics centered around education and the economy. Those were the first two topics, the first two conversations that I had on this show when I started it some time ago. We're now 220 episodes, 221 episodes in And I want to go back to someone who I count on here locally in the state of New York, Dr. Lester Young, who's a lifelong educator, and he is now the regent of New York State uh, Department of Education here in New York, and before that has served in a, a number of different roles and he's always he and his wife the other dr young are the two that i often go to anything related to education to ask them is this right is this you know backed by research is is this what we're seeing and so i wanted to recenter our conversation because this is timely and it's it's very crucial in the current political climate that we in, that we are in about the history of public education because as i mentioned on the show numerous times the cost of education is one of the largest thing largest financial things that the state any state is dealing with and in a time when school boards are political battlegrounds where the teaching of african-american history is being restricted we see books being banned all of that other kind of stuff Understanding the historical context of public education has never been more important than it is now, because as you're battling in your local communities, in your state, you need to have this very complex but detailed history, that context that helps shed light on the conflict that exists in uh, public education as it stands right now. And one of the things Dr. Young also says is that we need this recommitment to public education because there is this movement to make education private because folks do not want to pay for it for everybody's kids. So we do need a recommitment to that. So I was pleased to have this conversation with Dr. Young about the, the, the origins of public education and what it means and what our communities have had in the past and what we can get back to. What role does public education have in our society?
0: Um, if, if I could put it in a historical context, uh, some historians say that public education began with the statement that a nation that expects to be free and ignorant expects the impossible. Um, And and many historians attribute public education to that statement. The challenge is that the statement was made by Thomas Jefferson. And at the time that he made that statement, 60, more than 60% of the children in Virginia were enslaved Africans. So he really wasn't talking about that. And so while we can attribute the notion of public education to the early um, founders of America, what we know is that that system of public education was never really designed for us. And so from the very beginning, America has struggled with this idea of, of the conflict between its stated values and its actual behaviors. And so on, on the flip side of that, um, people of African descent have always understood the connection between learning, education, and freedom. I mean, that was a hallmark of our existence. And so if you go back to the period of enslaved Africans, when people were actually trying to learn how to read under, under tremendous, uh, tremendous, tremendous difficulty, and, and you're probably familiar with all the things that happened if you were caught trying to teach someone to read or if you were taught reading, but that never stopped them. And, and to the development of, of what was called church schools, Sabbath schools, not Sunday schools, but people would gather around under the guise of worshiping, but they were really learning to read. Um, and so that's always been part of our who we are as a people. The other, the other point, just to, just to answer your question, the role of public education, uh, it is really the equalizer. You know, the the key for all of us um, is how do we ensure that all of our young people have a high quality education? Uh, the, the challenge for us has been that under the idea of public education, um, there's never been the kind of one system that has worked for all of us. And so, for example, today people are saying, that the way to do public education is to have choice, as if choice is something new. Um, We've always had choice, right? I mean, it's probably when you were a child, I know when I was a youngster, in our community, I had friends that went to Catholic schools, they went to church schools, they went, in fact, some of them homeschooled, um, they went to private schools, and they went to public schools. And so the the distinction was that choice was about enrichment. In other words, parents selected these alternatives because the alternatives had something that they wanted. So choice was an enrichment and it was a part of our, our education process. The difference today is that choice is no longer an enrichment process. Choice has become a replacement process. And so if you talk to parents now when they exercise choice, they will tell you that they don't really know very much about the new school, the charter school, the school that they want to go to. They just want to get away from what they have. So choice is becoming a replacement strategy. And, and the problem with that is that for those parents that try to exercise their choice and don't get it, it tears the community apart. So what we've now done is move from communities where people exercise choice based on enrichment, so everyone got their choice and everyone was happy and we all functioned together. Now we are in a situation which some people get their choice and some people don't. And when you don't get your choice, what what does that do to you, right? What does that do to you as an adult? What's the message that that sends to your child? What does that say to your child? Just imagine being an adolescent, somebody telling you you have to go to a school that you don't even want to go to, no. right? We have a situation now occurring in many of our schools where you could have a school right across the street from and your child's four years old and you can't take your child to that school and register. them. That's a huge problem. So while public education is the equalizer, public education is moved from serving everyone um, to, to only serving segments of our population. So for example, in my lifetime, uh, we talked about, and you're familiar with the Brown decision, right? So it was all about I- integration, right? People said, okay, um, what we have to do is integrate the schools. Uh, so here's where we are now. If you go to many communities of color all across the country, what you will find in public schools are large numbers of kids of color who happen to be poor and who are not performing well and they're going to low performing schools and so the kind of isolation that you're having now it's not it's not a racial isolation it is it's really a socioeconomic isolation and so here's what you have you have you've got entire schools where kids don't see anyone that looks like themselves who are doing well. And so we play this game of trying to have a system, and that's what I, I want to go back to historic piece. When we had the choice for enrichment, we had a system of good school. It wasn't the concept of just one good school. We had an ecology of tremendous schools. Now what we have is everybody's just trying to get their child into one good school. Mm and see and we all know that that's not going to happen and so the vision of public education is that it's a public it's an education for all young people right You, you you know it shouldn't matter what school you go to and in fact if you live in a in an affluent community in this city and other cities what you will find is parents are not worried about what school their child will end up in this only happens in poor communities and so if you go for example um if you go to queens right if you go to the community of bayside no parent is worrying about what elementary school their child because they know whatever school they get in is going to be fine and you know what they can just go to the neighborhood middle school And if they don't get into a specialized high school, it doesn't matter because they can go to Cardoza High School or Bayside High School. Those are great schools. And those schools have over 3,000 students in them. So that's the other challenge. See, they've also tried to tell us that the only way we can educate our kids is if they're in a small school. Why does that only work in our community? And so again, the issue, this idea of public education, I think, it is still the great equalizer, um, but I think we've lost our way. And and I think it's become us uh, an education enterprise that's really not designed for it. And, and the thing that really hurts is when I hear people talking about, well, if we could only have a gifted class, if we could only have a gifted school. And what does that mean? That means that, yeah, gifted, I have nothing against gifted education, however, um, everyone can't get into the one gifted class and everyone cannot get into the gifted school. And so who among us know when any youngster is going to demonstrate their special gifts and talents? Right. Some of us bloom at different stages, right? And we also know that giftedness is really based on the kinds of opportunities that you have. it's it's not in the blood right this is this is see so so if you provide young people with the kinds of opportunities that will stimulate their thinking make connections etc and and, and this is not a time to talk about the the brain science but we do know that um, we can develop giftedness in young people but youngsters in public schools right now aren't being provided those opportunities and i think that what we have to do is is in the we um and i and i mean this sincerely the community along with educators and elected officials and leaders uh, what we really have to do is begin to talk about what is it that we want for all the children not just my child not just your child but all the children and i think by doing that, uh, we can achieve the value of public education. And I would just add one other thing that, that, that I think it's important to note. I said that many people attribute public education to that statement, but the public education that Thomas Jefferson was talking about was not universal public education he was really talking about education for white men. Because at the time that he said it, even white women couldn't go to school. Uh, If you understand the history of America, the idea of universal public education is an outgrowth of the black experience in America. And so this is a system that actually started with us. And we, right now, because we don't know it, we don't know our history, uh, we don't know how to use it. and So I think think it's important um, that we not abdicate our responsibility and we get back to this whole notion of how do we ensure that all of our young people receive their birthright, which is a quality education. The other dilemma in public education that we don't deal with uh, and what I always, I whenever I, I talk to young people, college students, I always encourage them to go into the law. And, and what I'm hoping is that there's gonna be this group of very smart young lawyers who will challenge what's called the Rodriguez decision. Everyone knows about the Brown decision. No one knows about the Rodriguez decision of 1973. Um, the Rodriguez decision in Texas, they said they wanted to challenge the way public education was funded. And as you know, um, education by constitution is a state responsibility, it's not federal responsibility. Um, And so Rodriguez uh, and plaintiffs, what they challenged was a very simple fact that all across America, states fund public education based on property tax. And we all know that that works if you live in a community with a high tax base. But suppose you're poor and you have a low tax base, what do your schools look like? And so Rodriguez actually was challenging this notion that by using property tax to pay for education, you're actually discriminating against poor people. The decision came down. Very interesting. The decision. First part of the decision says that, well, you know, that's not a constitutional right. See, so the only thing the states are required to do is provide you with enough education so that you can vote and and exercise your First Amendment rights. Now, that's the 1973 decision.
2: Yeah.
0: Right. So, right now what you have all across America between 1973 and the time of Barack Obama what you had is that all across America kids were learning different things they were they had different resources uh, people were spending different different amounts of money on their schools and money does make a difference when it comes to public education um, and and until we had this very smart man that became president Barack Obama who came in and said look I can't change the supreme court decision but what what i can do is is try to standardize what young people are learning and so he created he said we're going to institute something called the common core and a lot of people fight against that they, they don't really understand what the vision was for that because prior to barack obama every state they had their own standards so kids who lived in mississippi were learning one thing kids who lived in new york were learning something else even kids living Within the New York counties, we're learning different things. And so what he did was what I think the most masterful move in the last hundred years is say, okay, we're going to have a common set of standards for everyone. Right. So it really won't matter what your zip code is, how much money your parents have, whether you have parents, you will be exposed to the same set of content standards. And you see what happened. See, people are going crazy over this because, I mean, think about that. You know, soon as that got implemented, people, America went crazy in education. And so you've got to ask yourself, um, and, and I always say, I mean, I, I, I believe that, um, you know, like in most things, the pie is only so big, right? And so if all kids are being exposed to the same content, that really does away with some of the distinctions right that means that your child is going to be just as prepared to go to college as my child and now it means that you our children are going to be competing Mm -hmm. and so here's the other thing that happened when they raised the standards for the first time for the very first time all across america you were finding pockets where white children we're at the bottom. It wasn't just black kids at the bottom. So you got to ask yourself, why was it all right when the only kids who were at the bottom of children of color? You know, it's, it's almost as though failure has become normalized. You know, I, I like to say that sometimes, maybe in our community, we, we're almost in a cone. You know, it's kind of like, why is it all right that our children are going to be at the bottom? If you go out here on the corner and ask someone, who, who's going to be at the bottom. They ain't going to tell you. We, can pre- we say it, but it doesn't make us angry. And so when the Common Core came out and they gave those first round of tests based on the Common Core, people all across America went crazy. But where it was happening was primarily in affluent communities. Middle-income white communities across America were saying, wait a minute. Hold, you know. Our children are no longer at the time. And so I think, again, um, there's value in public education. However, we've got to be very clear that we can't be duped into just jumping on any bandwagon. And we have to understand that all of our young people, regardless of whether you're rich or not, whether you live in a shelter or not, you can achieve high standards. If you have the right opportunity. And that's really the challenge in public education. You know, how do we ensure that when we're raising the bar, that we're providing the steps so youngsters can reach the bar, that they're not just down there jumping up trying to get there. And that's the key for us. School boy and schoolgirl come together. Who is the teacher? I go let you know.
1: Welcome back to Sunday Civics. I'm Eljoy Williams. And what a wonderful grounding on education from Dr. Young. You see why I keep going back to him. (laughs) For all things as it relates to education, and I hope that provided a grounding for you in education as you are engaging in real-life battles in your local community or in your state. I want to switch gears uh, a bit, and it's on a bit of a, a, a somber note I mentioned that there was someone else that I went to often to help understand our economic system, what was at stake, what's currently at stake, helping to sort of unpack a number of different things. And the one of the people that I was able to do that with, an extraordinary person, William Spriggs, Bill Spriggs, Professor Spriggs, departed this this earthly world recently. And I, you know, i was just a bit taken aback because I was looking forward to bringing him at the front of the class again to talk about and to ground us in another aspect of our economy. And he always laid things out so plainly, He was an inspiration. He was a very influential voice in economics and, you know, had a tireless effort to address racial disparities and had a dedication to justice and equality, particularly as it pertains to our economic system. And, you know, we've brought him on the show before. He helped ground us in the beginning. I think it was the... Third episode of Sunday Civics, where we had a grounding on our economic system. And we brought it back again to talk about the Farm Bill and how complex that bill, that legislation is, and what's included. In there, and most recently, he was warning and talking about the potential dangers on the moves from the Federal Reserve, also about increase in prices and supply cost, and all of the things that had an impact on our economy. Um, he was more than an economist; he was a champion for racial justice and a mentor to many. I'm going to share with you this conversation that I had with Professor Spriggs about the Farm Bill. And I'm not sure if you've ever, (laughs) you don't have to be a nerd about the Farm Bill as I am and Professor Spriggs was. But it contains a lot about not only our economy and our agriculture, but also our care for those are who are using snap benefits And so as an economist who focused a lot on these issues, he was also the chief economist for AFL-CIO. He was an advisor to the Minneapolis (laughs) Fed. He was the chair of Department of Economics at Howard University. He was an assistant secretary for labor policy. So he had a wealth of experience uh, about these issues and his book, Raising the Floor, the effects of minimum wage on uh, low-wage workers, which was before sort of the focus on raising the minimum wage. He wrote this in the 90s, right? So he has been a dedicated advocate to these issues for a very long time. I am just heartbroken following his passing earlier this week and just wanted to take a moment to... Acknowledge his work, his commitment to racial and economic justice. And Dr. Spriggs, your impact is far reaching and your legacy is enduring. And we mourn your loss, but we also celebrate you and the difference that you truly made. Rest with the ancestors, and we will be in memory and you know, to your family, obviously, and to others whose lives you touched. We are so deeply in mourning, but in celebration of your life. So here's the conversation that we had, beginning conversation we had about the Farm Bill, but also sets the stage in general about our economy. So
3: agriculture is America's first industry. It- the original wealth of the United States came from cotton and from the slaves who picked that cotton and from the slave trade that brought the slaves here to pick the cotton, Uh, the sugar that got transported from the Caribbean to to trade for the slaves and so forth. So, so this has been the core of American industry for a long time. And one of the first departments outside of a state and, Justice and all that sort of thing. I was the Department of Agriculture, and it's a huge department. So the food bill, as it's called, or the farm bill, is really directed at, at the broad implications of this industry. It includes a lot of things, because agriculture is a lot of things. So um, it includes provisions for uh, for soil conservation among farmers, price supports for farming, Uh, export assistance for farming, um, and for those who are workers, there are provisions that talk about access to food support. And of the elements of the bill that tend to be contentious most recently, this has been one of the more contentious parts, is the part that is food, the many different food assistance programs that we have.
1: And that's including SNAP uh, or food stamps, as it's more uh, commonly known. And just in talking about the history of this bill, this goes back to the Great Depression, if I'm not mistaken?
3: Well, the bill itself goes back to the Great Depression, because during the Great Depression, farm prices collapsed, and farmers just could not make it. And that's when we put in um, all sorts of provisions to help support farmers. And- The irony is that this was a massive government intervention into the marketplace to protect people in rural areas, and yet they tend to be very conservative about any program that protects anybody else.
1: (laughs) So it's a handout, are you (laughs) saying?
3: Well, it's not a handout. I mean, this is the irony. So farmers fully understand that for reasons above and beyond the control of the individual. Despite your best efforts, a number of things can happen. You can have crop failures. Uh, You can have weather that's too good, and then the crop is so abundant that prices collapse. Uh, You can have global forces that can collapse prices uh, because there's overabundance of wheat uh, in the market or corn in the market. Um, You can be at a disadvantage producing something and because you want to uh, continue to have U.S. production, uh, we for a long time subsidized cotton, we subsidized corn, uh, we subsidized uh, sugar cane. And, and so, you know, uh, for farmers who were sugar cane and cotton producers to not understand, well, why do auto workers want to have their industry protected? Or for farmers particularly during the Great Depression because the soil in the Midwest had been over uh, farmed and turned the topsoil turned into dust they saw their crops disappear uh, to understand that the market can fail and and then what do you do if if you say to the farmers well the market ruled so you have to stop farming then of course we as a society understand that's bad. Because next year the weather may not be that way, and we still need somebody to go out there and farm because we still need food mm-hmm. and the same way during the Great Depression, because demand collapsed, and people didn't have money, so even during the Great Depression, we were doing industrial level farming, you know we had canned meat canned um canned vegetables, so we we had the ability to produce so that those industries could exist but when people lost their jobs the demand for these things collapsed for dairy and the prices got so low that farmers were killing their animals because they couldn't make money if they brought them to product so so the point of these programs was an understanding that we still need the farmers even if in a particular year or for particular period uh, the market had ruled against them. And so we had to support them to to look at the long run. And in the long run, uh, that was deemed to be the best for everyone's interest. So it is so ironic because that sector of the economy is so dependent on the government fixing bad markets to protect the interest of the producers that they don't have the – tend not to have the same sympathy when workers find themselves in the same situation. So the farmers who get a subsidy for sugar ought to feel totally sympathetic to textile workers who are wiped out when we said, oh, well, we'd all rather buy cheap shirts from China and Indonesia and Bangladesh than get them from somebody in South Carolina or North Carolina or rural Virginia. But we wipe them out. By that policy. Now when they get wiped out, that means they need money for food.
1: <laughs> right. And then now and, we're back to the original.
3: And, and and now and now we're back to one of the realizations of the SNAP program, which is that for various reasons at various points in time, the labor market, just like the agricultural market, can fail. And when it fails, you could say to the people, the market ruled against you. Goodbye or you could say what is the what is the market it's a it's just a fiction right we we can we can give it ultra powers like the market is so efficient and this is the best way to allocate goods and services and everyone wants to be able to buy what they want to buy when they want to buy it and the government shouldn't interfere but the market can can end up making mistakes because it's too short term and it can't necessarily price in the full impact on the economy or fully build in the long run. So, I mean, because we consume corn, right? So it's not like you could say, well, the price of corn has to incorporate the risk to the farmer over, you know, a 40 year farming career that at some point in time, the price may fall, so the price of corn has to be set high enough to incorporate those risks. But that's not how it works, because corn doesn't last forty years. <laughs> right. So, so the the price and the way the market works is the short run. It doesn't work in the long run,
1: and it and, doesn't necessarily care if you're letting the market just decide. It doesn't care to extend, you know, extend it for forty years, or care that whole industries or whole communities exist based upon corn and how it circulates within a, a, a region or an area. It doesn't care about that. It's just, as you mentioned, focus on the short term of making money and flipping things over.
3: Exactly. So I I consider it to be the ultimate fetish because there are people who actually worship this concept.
1: The concept of, of the, the market. market.
3: And the market must be pleased as if it were a god, right? Mm-hmm. So if if we don't adhere to the market, you know, like something bad is going to happen. It's, it's like, you know, sacrificing people to a volcano. <laughs> oh, a volcano god is going to erupt. It's like, really?
1: Well, it's the same thing about capitalism overall, where people who sort of worship the system and because they believe there's no other system that they can think of or that they've seen play out that would result in them with the possibility of being... You know, Warren Buffett or wealthy, which is always what gets me about uh, people in economic policy. They are viewing it aspirationally, right? I don't want these policies to change because when I get rich or when I reach this level, I don't want to change any of that and not focusing on the policies that will benefit people or benefit you where you are at the current time.
3: Exactly. And it's, it's so for those people, that reward is like getting to heaven, right? So, so from their perspective, when you mess with the market, you're messing with heaven. That's, and if they were honest, mm-hmm. they would understand. They actually see it in those theological terms. Wow, you know, it's exactly what you said. It's it's it would be like telling a Christian, uh, well, God is fallible. So don't worry about you know he makes mistakes. It's like no 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 I want to get to heaven, <laughs> and you you just say there's no God so I can't get to heaven if there's no God. I mean th- but this is how they think exactly what you said. If if I step in when the market has made a mistake, I'm admitting that the market is fallible, and if the market is fallible then I can't justify my reward mm. of beginning to be Warren Buffett, and and so you just took away my heaven. So right. they and and they respond with that kind Of religious fervor of someone who is, you know, a zealot, right? It's like, no, 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 you must stay to the rule.
1: Yeah, how can it be that you love the most what Welcome back to Sunday Civics. We are continuing my past conversation with Professor Bill Spriggs. Is the overall worship of the market is it tied to the idea of American exceptionalism? It's more about protecting the market and the institutions rather than protecting the people themselves.
3: It and this is why I call it a religion. It really is about protecting the religion and not the people. Mm-hmm. And the frustration for many people comes with that confusion because they would want the government to be in their minds fair unfortunately so many people actually believe in the market <laughs> that they wish bad on other people because they feel they violated the market so you can see people who are upset we don't even spend 2% of our budget on food assistance you would think from the debate that the government was spending you know, I don't know, 10%, 15%, 20%, some huge amount of money of the budget. Like this is really robbing you as a worker who doesn't get the benefit. You're being cheated because these people are living off of you. And it's like, it's not even two cents out of your tax dollar. It's not even two cents. And so the tragedy becomes, and again, this is the the, the religious part, for the market to work, Whatever the base price is doesn't matter because it builds on the base price. Mm-hmm. So if the base price is everybody can afford food, that's the base price, and then it goes up. So the market is still going to have inequality. The issue is what does the bottom look like? Mm-hmm. But that's not how people talk. When they see someone getting food, they object. So it again, is like religion. If there's a heaven, there must be a hell.
1: It's either or. There's no.
3: They have to be both, right? If there's a heaven, there has to be a hell. And so that means if you violate the rules, if you sin, the wages of sin are death, right? So if you sin against the market because you can't afford food.
1: Or health care.
3: Or health care. Then you have to go to hell. You must be punished. It's not that I can live in a society where everybody has food. This isn't the question there must be punishment, because heaven requires a hell. And and these people worship the market, they get angry. They get angry over food assistance because we're not punishing those people.
1: Is it, it it's similar, it's almost similar to we're talking to people about equity and equality, mm-hmm. right? That if you become equal to me by getting equity, that means I've lost something.
3: Yes, exactly.
1: And that's the kind of fear language that we are in right now. They're saying that if people come here seeking asylum, <laughs> seeking help, that means you're losing something. It creates that, that, that fear in politics or that fear just in society, that other people coming here, that other people getting equity, that other people having access means that I, I lose something.
3: That's exactly it. That's exactly it. Cause that's the sickness of this religion. It's a sick religion. Cause Look look at the history of it. So most European Americans trace themselves not to the Mayflower, but some immigrant wave, either an immigrant wave that came in the 1840s or uh, the bulk of them who came in the late 19th, early 20th century. So they came to this country. They were offered free education. There was public schools for them. Uh, Those who came after the Civil War came to a nation that had created land-grant universities so that not only did they get free K through 12 education, but they were offered very affordable college education, which in their home country would never have happened.
2: Mm -hmm.
3: Before the Great Depression, many of those states had experimented with what we came to call welfare, that is payment to single mothers only for whites. And, 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 right? Those who are are, are in the Midwest were given this opportunity to become farmers because when they came in 1870 or 1880, we said, you know the land that used to belong to those Native Americans? Nah, we'll break those treaties. This land is open. You can homestead it. We'll give you 100 acres if you just farm it. So they were given the land, given free education, given the chance to affordable college, and they had this access to this welfare. And now they want to say, oh, well, immigrants, they just want stuff. They just want to be given stuff. It's like, wait a minute. (laughs) Who's talking about immigrants and being given stuff? If you're Native American, like, oh, you mean like giving my land or African-Americans who were given no access to these programs? You mean like after we created the wealth of the nation, you just come along and get to benefit from the wealth of the nation that we built? And you're talking about immigrants?
1: (laughs) It's more than laughable. (laughs) It's more than laughable. Oh, my goodness. Professor Spriggs, thanks so much for uh, sitting in and um, talking to us about this. You know, one final thing I want to uh, ask, and maybe there is no easy answer to this, is with now this information, with this history, with this context, what do the listeners do? What are some of the simple steps? If I can't control the market overall, what are the simple steps to even start
3: yeah, so first and foremost, you have to stop worshiping the market. You <laughs> you you have to decide that at the end of the day what matters is do I live in a just society and do we um do, do we have a society in which all people have an opportunity to rise and, ex- and and excel? And the key when it comes to food assistance is to remember that um just because of the biology of human beings, um, children are born into families headed by young people. And young people in the United States today don't make a lot of money. So disproportionately to the rest of the world, um, American children live in poverty. We have the highest poverty rate for children of any industrialized nation. And if you worship the market so much and say, well, poor people have to starve, Okay, but you're saying American children have to starve. And they're our future. They're the ones who have to grow up, defend our nation, earn income so that you can get your Social Security benefit. If for no other narrow reason... Make it selfish. Yes, make it selfish that you want an army that isn't just made up of a bunch of little sticks and bones and you want people making up money so you can get your Social Security check and you can have your Medicare... You should care whether these children grow up to be healthy adults. And you shouldn't have to have people prove to you common sense. But we've done study after study that, in fact, feeding children is a good investment. If you feed children, they grow up and do better in school. Who would have thought? You know? <laughs> you know what? If, if you send somebody to school hungry, you just don't get as good a result as if you send them to school well-fed. Uh, they're more productive. Who would have thought? <clears throat> uh, we We know because there are variations in when children had access to food lunch programs. We know when some kids had food assistance and other kids. they not we know that these programs actually have real outcomes that are good for everyone, not just for the child. And so if you just want a society that works, you you understand, that a society that says well I don't like that outcome I don't like the better outcome I want the worse outcome you're doing that out of religion not to God not to God a religion called the market you believe in the invisible hand your new God is the invisible hand and so if if you want to worship the invisible hand fine you know whatever um, but it's a false God it's an evil God uh, and So so they need to respond to, what does my society need? And putting a work requirement to say, well, you, you can't get food if you don't work, is based on a weird racist belief that somehow or another I'm going to be punishing the other. Here's the reality. Since the recovery in 2010, The labor force participation rate for blacks and for Hispanics has risen dramatically. It is not for whites. Mm. So today, the employment-to-population ratio, the share of people in the population who work among blacks is about the same as for whites, and for Hispanics, it's far higher, far higher than it is for whites. The people who are going to be punished for this are going to be disproportionately Poor white women. Mm
2: -hmm.
3: But again, this is America's other sickness. Not only do we worship the market, but we're racist.
1: And we worship whiteness.
3: And, And we would prefer to punish millions of poor white women, millions of poor white women, in order to get at our perception of who we think this work provision attacks. And we're so perverse in our racism. That even when the facts say you are designing a program to hurt poor white women, you'd rather rather go ahead and hurt them. Because, as you were pointing out, in my world of relativism, I don't care if I'm all, all right. I just want to make sure that somebody else is not. I don't care if I'm eating. I just want to make sure somebody else isn't. And in this case, racism is going to have this perverse outcome because people are so racist they haven't even looked at the real numbers recently. Mm. And 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 they don't realize who is really going to be hurt here in a very disproportionate way. And so they need to think about is that the world I want to live in? And they need to think about whether we're looking at the wrong enemy. Walmart, the biggest employer in the United States, got billions of dollars in tax credits. And we were told, well, workers are gonna get a huge rate raise. What did Walmart do? They spent billions of dollars buying another company in China, expanding their Chinese operations, and buying back billions of dollars of stock. That's what they did with their But tax they gave tax.
1: bonuses though.
3: Yeah, and they gave small bonuses to a small number of workers. <laughs> and and so rather than say, why do these workers, why do these workers need food assistance? Shouldn't we be saying to Walmart, why aren't you paying your workers? Mm. And, again, it's this sick religion. They think of Walmart as a God creator. Mm. It's a job creator, the great job creator. And we can't mess with the job creator. Mm
2: -hmm.
3: It's a religion. It's a religion. It's sick. It's a sick religion. So wake up. Be faithful. Be true to your own God, the real God. (laughs) You should want a world that's just. And at the end of the day, when you were asked, when I was hungry, did you feed me? You better have the right answer.
1: (laughs) Thank you, Professor Spriggs. Thank you for your wealth of knowledge and for sharing it with us. Rest well.